This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone. It's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues, and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I'm by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers, however I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together we will learn about some of the lesser known British murderers, as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. Hello everyone and welcome again to British Murders. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is now the 8th episode of Season 3. Before we get right into it this week, I want to introduce a new segment of the show. Basically, I was cleaning out my bedside table the other day and I came across an old gift that my daughter got me for Father's Day a couple of years ago. She did well getting me anything considering she's only just turned 3. My YouTube viewers will be able to see this, but for the benefit of my audio-only listeners, I'm holding in my hand what looks like a deck of playing cards. However, on each of the 50 cards, it contains a random dad fact that every dad should know, rather than a number within one of four different suits. I do realise that playing cards have 52 cards as opposed to 50, by the way, before anyone jumps in with a magical correcting comment. I've no idea what these facts are, as I've only read them once, but the box says they're facts that all dads should know. It does say that, as you can see, facts every dad should know. I'm telling you right now, I won't know any of these. So let's have a look. I'm going to do one at random. And this is why, you know, the YouTube videos are so good. (laughs) So good. My views are ace. Check this out. You can hear the shuffling for the audio. And me hitting my pop filter. You can probably hear my sweat dribbling down my forehead too. Give my greasy hair a swish back. And here we go. Dad facts. 
first ever segment, first ever episode of the new segment. I don't know what I'm talking about. Number one, dad fact. We'll do one of these every week. <laughs> if you think it's shit, just tell me and I'll stop doing it, but it makes me laugh. So here we go. Putting your phone on airplane mode whilst it's charging will help it to charge faster. Interesting fact, as I record this on my phone, my phone is in airplane mode. Not even joking. The reason for that is, and it's plugged in. Not to make it charge quicker, that's just daft. But because in the past, when I've recorded and my alarm's gone off or someone's rung me, it cuts the video. So then I've carried on recording, not realising it wasn't, carried on speaking, realised it wasn't recording afterwards and it was just a nightmare. You have to do it in like two or three different videos. It's just a nightmare to edit. So that's why I record in airplane mode. But yeah, you should know that because it does legit work. So there you go. That was my debut of the new segment, Random Dad Facts. The, you know, the new segment in British Murders. It fits perfectly. So, I mean, if it made you laugh, let me know. If you think it's shit, tell me. If you want to add any new segments, let me know. I just want to make it fun. I just want to make it fun to do for me, fun for you to listen or watch. Now, in the slightly altered words of Marshall Mathers Third, let's get down to business. You don't got no time to play around. What is this? On this week's show, I'll be telling you the tragic story of a lovely old fella and the cruel middle-aged femme fatale who was the architect of his demise. As with last week's episode and a fair few before it, I searched to see if anyone had covered this case before on a podcast and it appears that once again, I'm the first. This is another British Murders exclusive. Don't know why I said British there instead of British. That was cringe though, sorry. As usual, let us first take a look at the area where today's story takes place before we take a look at the characters involved. This week, we're in the southeastern county of Surrey. We've probably been there before, I just can't remember because my memory is shit. There are two places of interest that we need to take a look at in a bit more detail. The first of which is the ancient market and coaching town of Godulming. I've researched the pronunciation. Most people apparently say Godalming, but apparently it's Godulming. Godulming, we'll go with. It looks like a proper cute town, this. The River Way runs through the middle of it, and it appears to have lots of oldie-worldie shops and events which change depending on the season. Its main trade back in the day used to be wool-making. Picture canal barges parked up, an old church, and old English pubs. I found a funny article which contains some facts about Godulming. Here's a few of the best. The River Way was named Way, W-E-Y, by the Romans because Way means river. Therefore, Godalming's River is technically called the River River. I've just... Hearing myself say it, it's not even funny. But when I was reading this article, I was howling. There are so many... <laughs> there are so many barber shops that the residents often wonder where all the hair is hidden. I mean, barbershops these days are literally everywhere. They're like Starbucks of the modern era, aren't they? And finally, this one hit deep. Godalming would win the greatest density of charity shops award if there was such a thing. I love browsing charity shops for old books and DVDs. I recently bought the Godfather book. I've never read the book. I've only seen bits of the film when I was a kid, so I've no idea what the story is, but it's absolutely class. You can find some gems in charity shops at bargain prices. I guess the equivalent might be a thrift shop, I don't know. 
Thanks there to Laura Newhouse. Hope I'm saying that right over at Surrey Live for making me chuckle whilst reading that article. I genuinely was pissing myself. The second place of interest this week is Godalming's neighbouring town of Milford. This is an even smaller and cuter little village that lies just over two miles southwest of the main town of Godalming. To clarify, Milford is a village within the town of Godalming. This is one of those places where you can't really have many secrets because everybody knows everybody. The village's only butcher knows the village vicar, who knows the village's only milkman, who knows the village post office staff. You get the picture. If you're from a small village in England, as I am, then you'll be able to picture the sort of place I'm talking about. Apparently, there's an award-winning farm shop named Secrets in Milford, and they also host an award-winning farmer's market each year. I had to say that take three times because I kept getting my words muddled, and I'm an amateur. The point is, it sounds like my kind of village, this. When I searched for facts about Milford, that's all that came up, apart from the other article about Godalming as a whole. I've just said Godalming when it's Godalming, so there you go. I'm going to start leaving some of my fuck-ups in the podcast, because people hear it and they say how, you know, it sounds so professional and all this. If you could see my actual setup and how many times I make mistakes, it's a joke. I'm so, it's such a cowboy production, this. But with that said, let me introduce you first to William Bill Williamson. Bill was a jolly man who his friends described as short, stocky and always smiling. He was well known in the village of Milford, a place he'd lived in for 30 years, and he got on with anyone and everyone. He used to be the village's postman until he retired, so it makes sense that he knew all the local residents. Cheerful Bill was known for his cheeky little laugh and his one pride and joy was a white sports car. Given his advanced age, though, it makes sense as to why the car rarely saw any light outside of Bill's garage. Bill used to be married, but his wife Mary sadly passed away in 2004 when he was 76, and since then he'd become increasingly lonely. The couple didn't have any children, so Bill couldn't just pop round to his son's or daughter's house for a cuppa or give him a ring to check in. Having said that, Mary, who was Irish, had family over in the Emerald Isle, so they would visit them every now and again, make the trip over there. Bill did have a sister, though the pair didn't speak and were considered estranged. Since Mary's passing, Bill spent a lot of his time gardening as he considered himself to be rather green-fingered. He was one of those characters who his friends would tease about not being able to get him off the phone once he started talking to you. Essentially, he was desperate for companionship and sought it from everyone he bumped into. In either 2006 or 2007, both dates were quoted in different sources, Bill met a lady named Anne Browning. They got on right away, and seeing as this was only a few years after his wife passed away, a still grieving Bill will likely have been overjoyed at the chance to have a new female companion in his life. Anne would have been around 46 or 47 when they met, so there was a significant age gap between them. Anne lived in Oxford Ridge, a part of the main town of Godulming. She had been married herself in the past, twice as a matter of fact, and had two children. My sources didn't indicate whether Anne's children were from one marriage or a combination of both, but it doesn't matter, as it's completely irrelevant to the story. Is it just me whose mind goes to those places when you hear that sort of thing? Hmm, I wonder which ex-husband is the father of those kids. Or is each ex-husband the father of one each? 
Just me? Okay, moving swiftly on. Anne Browning was described as being an attractive lady by her neighbours, not exactly my cup of tea, but each to their own, and she had two greyhounds whom she was seen walking every day. For work, Anne cleaned houses, and I also read somewhere that she was an amateur beekeeper. A mate of mine used to keep bees, or still keeps bees, or more likely we discussed the possibility of him keeping bees and it never actually happened. If you're listening, mate, let me know. Or I'll just ask you at work tomorrow, that might be easier. Me remembering to ask you will be the hard part. Bees do interest me, that's either a huge surprise or not a surprise at all to my regular listeners, so here's a couple of random facts about bees. Did you know a collection of beehives is called an apiary, and that sometimes beekeepers are referred to as apiarists? Did you know that the technical term for beekeeping is apiculture? Do you know what the study of bees is called? I'll go ahead and assume no because I didn't, but it's called melitology. And finally, you may have heard the story that a bee dies after it stings you. Well, that's not necessarily true. Most bees don't die when they sting you, only honeybees do. Every other bee could sting you over and over again without meeting the grim beeper. According to Beehive Hero, Honeybee stingers are designed differently from those of other bees. Their stingers are barbed, so they basically have little hooks on them. Think of it like when you drive out of a car park. You can drive forward over the spikes, but then if you reversed, you'd slash your tyres. Because human skin is so thick and layered, if a honeybee stings us, the barbs get caught and it therefore gets pulled out from the honeybee's bum. That causes its internal organs to tear away with it, which essentially leaves it with a fatal wound. Don't worry though, honeybees don't have a death wish. They're just as shook as us when their arse and vital organs fall off when they sting us. They're just trying to protect themselves because they feel threatened, poor bastards. Back to true crime now. We first met Bill, then we met Anne, and then Bill met Anne. At the start of 2008, a few red flags reared their ugly heads with regards to Anne and her relationship to Bill. Bill accused Anne of stealing money from him. It wasn't a petty amount either, it was 1200 quid that he claimed she stole from one of his personal bank accounts. Despite his claims, Bill had no proof, only his suspicions and gut feeling. And you know what they say about always trusting your gut? To be fair, Bill did trust his gut. He wanted nothing more to do with Anne after that. The pair didn't speak for a good few months until Anne managed to worm her way back into Bill's life. It's important to remember here that Bill was an easy target if anyone wanted to take advantage of him. He was a very good-natured and trusting man who wanted to see the best in everyone. Anne, knowing full well what Bill was like, used this to her advantage and got back in touch with him in March 2009. Her angle was to use the story of her dog dying to garner sympathy from Bill and re-establish their companion relationship. Bill used to walk Anne's greyhounds with her back in their friendly days, so naturally he showed great sympathy at hearing the news and just like that, Anne was back in Bill's life. Their companionship continued as it had before, only this time it seemed to grow stronger. In July 2010, Bill made the decision to sell his home in Milford that he'd been living in for the past 30 years. Note there how I said Bill made the decision. 
as this story unfolds, I'll let you be the judge as to whether you think Bill was in fact the one making that decision or whether the whole thing was being masterminded by Anne. The rumours going around town was that Bill was going to move in with Anne once his property had sold. If we look at this logically, things can't have simply been at a companionship level in Bill's head for him to make such a monumental decision. Anne was almost 30 years younger than Bill, so perhaps to him, their friendship had more to it. Bill's friends asked him about it and from what I could make out, he basically wanted Anne to look after him and keep him company. That's all he'd ever wanted since Mary died and that's what he thought Anne would do. Sadly, Bill was mistaken. The completion date for Bill's house sale was September 10th, 2010. It was a Friday. I'm not sure why I mentioned the day of the week there as it has no bearing on the story. On the same day Bill sold his beloved home of 30 years in Milford, he moved in with Anne up in Godalming. After that day, Bill was never seen again. His friends at first found it bizarre that no one seemed to have seen Bill around the village for a while. It wasn't like Bill to just disappear without telling anyone where he was going and with whom. After a couple of weeks, the whole village started murmuring about where on earth lovely Bill was. He'd seemingly fallen off the face of the earth. By the third week of nobody seeing Bill, the local postman, who I assume took Bill's job over when he retired, made remarks to neighbours about Bill's car. He noticed that the car was being moved every other day to a new spot in the village. That just shows you first of all how well known Bill is that the people recognise his car and how nosy post office staff can be. By week four, concerns were finally escalated to the point where the police were called. You may be thinking, that's quite a long time to wait before ringing police, but remember, Bill has no family. His friends in the village were more acquaintances whom he saw when out running errands. Who were they to know Bill's business? The police were called by Bill's social care team as he'd missed not one but two of his recent appointments. I guess missing one can be put down as a fair enough he's only missed one situation but missing two clearly rang some alarm bells. He was 82 after all. The two appointments were for the hospital and his local GP. Important appointments to miss if you ask me. Bill was now classed as a missing person by the police. Naturally, the first thing the police did was figure out where Bill was living and who his close contacts were. After discovering his relationship with Anne Browning and hearing the rumours that Bill had recently moved in with her, she was their first person of interest. The police made a house call and asked Anne if she knew any information regarding the whereabouts of Bill Williamson. She was unfazed by the appearance of the local constabulary and replied by claiming she knew exactly where Bill was. According to Anne, Bill was in Ireland attending a funeral. He apparently got a bus and then a train. And then asked the police if they were done with her inquiry as she had a game of bingo to attend. Clearly, there was no cause for concern if Anne Browning was to be believed. So, off Anne popped to the local bingo hall in the hopes of winning some big money courtesy of two little ducks and a fat lady with a walking stick. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, look up British Bingo Nicknames. The police, however, wasn't as convinced as I'm sure Anne would have hoped. The Ireland story made little sense. Sure, Bill used to visit Ireland with his late wife Mary, but to get there by bus and train didn't quite add up. Surprisingly, 
Anne had provided the police with an address book that contained the contact details for Bill's extended family in Ireland. That's a pretty weird thing to do if you're not telling the truth. After speaking with said relatives, police were informed that Bill hadn't been in touch with any of them for a few months. They also noted it would be out of character for him to make that trip. I assume the trips became less frequent once Mary passed away as they were her relatives after all. After making some inquiries with local residents, it was revealed that Bill looked after Anne financially and she wasn't exactly loved by the community. Bill paid Anne to do some cleaning, which is either him helping out a mate as it's her job, or Anne was exploiting Bill as she allegedly had in 2008. Bill had even bought Anne a car at one point. That doesn't sound like just friendship to me. Then again, maybe Bill was just that much of a nice guy. You won't be surprised to hear that the Milford rumour mill felt like Anne was just with Bill for his money. Anne was basically thought of as a gold digger. If we bring ourselves back to the missing person investigation, the next move made by police was to take a look at Bill's recent financial activity. They went through Bill's bank accounts to see if he'd used his debit card within the last four weeks since going missing. The thought process is that the police could acquire CCTV footage from the retailers and check to see if Bill was making those payments. The first thing to note is that Bill's debit card was still being used in the UK, despite Anne claiming him to be in Ireland. When the CCTV footage was checked, police didn't see Bill Williamson using his debit card to make any payments. Instead, they saw only Anne Browning. Imagine if they saw nobody within Bill's life or something weird like Bigfoot using his debit cards. Be mad that, wouldn't it? I recently listened to a podcast episode about Bigfoot, by the way, so the hairy lad is fresh on my mind. The officer in charge of Bill's missing person case was Detective Inspector Juliet Parker, a senior investigating officer of Surrey Police. After piecing together all of the evidence gathered so far, she made the decision to arrest Anne on Wednesday, October 6, 2010, on the suspicion of the murder of Bill Williamson. A pretty bold move, that was, to be honest. They hadn't found a body, and Bill's whereabouts were still unknown. Then again, it seemed there was sufficient evidence and red flags with which to proceed with the decision to arrest Anne. The funny thing is that Anne wasn't at all surprised when she was arrested. She was noted as being calm and compliant. A man named Marcus Morin was also arrested the following day on October 7th and was revealed to be Anne's son. He didn't remain a key suspect for long though as he was released on police bail shortly after his arrest pending further inquiries. Marcus's boss Brian Knight said he was the most placid guy he'll ever meet and he felt the charges wouldn't stick. At first, Anne stubbornly answered all of the investigating officer's questions with a simple, no comment. I bet that's so annoying when you're interviewing a suspect. It must scream guilt to the officers though, because why say no comment if you're not guilty? Then again, some people blabber on for days and they turn out to be guilty, so you can't really call it. Whilst Anne was being asked several questions in an interview room, Forensic experts were searching a house for any signs of trauma that may relate to Bill Williamson's disappearance. What they found was a couple of blood spots near the front door of Anne's home. As the blood was sent off to be analysed and Anne spent the night in the cells, nobody could have predicted what happened next. 
The following morning, Anne's solicitor informed the police that their client was ready to confess to murdering Bill Williamson. The confession interview is available to watch in full on YouTube, but here's a brief rundown. Anne said, I confessed to his murder. I killed him. He said he was going, and I just lost my temper. He'd made all these promises that we were going to have a nice life together. Regretfully, I reached out and hit him over the head with a bit of a baseball bat. I was really, really upset, and I just hit and hit and hit out. I can't remember how many times I hit him, but I know I killed him. Anne went on to say that she stripped Bill naked, wrapped his body in a shower curtain, and dragged him outside to her back garden. She then dumped Bill's body in a hole she'd dug. Here's the interesting part. Anne said in the interview, and I quote, I made the hole bigger. I dug it a bit and made it bigger and I dumped his body in the hole. That implies that before killing Bill, there was already a hole in the back garden, but it likely wasn't big enough, so Anne had to make it bigger. That screams premeditation to me. It's not the actions of someone who killed another human due to seeing red. After hearing this revelation, the forensics team back at Anne's house were told to thoroughly search the back garden. Prior to this new information, the forensic team had only conducted a visual search of the back garden and noted nothing out of place. I suppose that's fair enough because you can't just look at every single garden and think, we better dig this up in case there's a body there. Now they were looking for a body, three specialists were called in to help with the search. A forensic archaeologist was called in to help with the excavation of Bill's body. A forensic anthropologist was called in to take a look at Bill's body and bone structure. And finally, a forensic entomologist was called in to take a look at any bugs or insects that may have gotten inside Bill's body. What a strange area of expertise. The team eventually found and exhumed Bill's body, but it was a very laborious task. It took the team five hours to remove Bill's body from Anne's back garden. His body was buried in a huge grave which was made up of heavy condensed soil. This meant one thing, he'd been buried there a long time. Police put two and two together and assumed Bill had been killed and buried on the same day he sold his house and moved in with Anne. The other thing which screamed premeditation was that Bill was buried face first with his legs bent up and tied up behind his knees. This was likely because his body didn't fit into the grave Anne had previously dug. Therefore, she needed to make the hole bigger as she said in her confession. She also stood on Bill's body in an attempt to fit him into the grave. This woman had zero respect for poor Bill Williamson, even in death. Back in the house, the forensics team found Anne's diary. On one of the dates around the time when Bill was last seen, she had simply written R.I.P. That is so disturbingly chilling, isn't it? Anne was soon formally charged with the murder of Bill Williamson. The chain of events were thought to be as follows. Anne dug a grave in the back garden to prepare for when she murdered Bill. When his back was turned, she hit him in the back of the head several times with a plastic baseball bat. Truth being told, it was more of a rounder's bat. And then dragged Bill outside, placed him into the grave, but realised it was too small. She then dug the grave further and placed Bill's body in it. Bill's post-mortem confirmed that he was hit from behind and likely had no idea the attack was even coming. Despite admitting to Bill's murder, Anne was adamant that it was not financially motivated as the police had suggested. 
It's thought she did this in an attempt to reduce her jail sentence. The trial took place in early 2011. The prosecution claimed the murder was premeditated and financially motivated, whereas the defence said Bill was going to leave Anne, they argued, and Anne accidentally killed Bill in a spare-of-the-moment attack. If you're not convinced by everything you've heard so far as to whether or not this attack was financially motivated, check this out. When Bill's house sale completed on September 10th, 2010 for £246,000, the funds were received into Anne and Bill's joint post office account. Roughly a week later, Anne forged Bill's signature and sent £140,000 from the joint account into an account held in her sole name. It's worth remembering that Bill had already been dead for a week at that point and was buried in Anne's back garden. In another move to indicate how unfazed Anne was by all this, she even wrote birthday cards to some of Bill's friends and signed them as Bill. She clearly wanted to go to great lengths to convince everyone that Bill was still alive and well. Imagine how long that would have gone on for had she not been arrested. The most twisted part of this story, though, involves Anne's other son, not Marcus, the other one. He was due to get married shortly after Anne killed Bill, and she went straight back to wedding planning after committing the murder. The other son has nothing to do with the murder, by the way, but the wedding is what's relevant. Unbeknownst to her son, and everyone else due to attend the wedding, the reception was going to take place in Anne's back garden. She was actually planning to have a wedding reception in her garden, knowing full well that Bill's body was underneath everyone's feet. I couldn't believe that when I first heard it. Imagine going to that wedding and not knowing that, and then finding out later. Oh, God. Awful. Luckily, it didn't go ahead, obviously. After a short trial, Anne was found guilty of Bill's murder and sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term to serve of 25 years. Judge Christopher Critchlow, recorder of Guildford, said there was no doubt that Anne had planned Bill's murder. In his closing statement, he said, I am sure that she did not kill him in a burst of temper in a row. Taking all her lies and the cumulative effect of them makes me sure that she did plan his murder. He was a small man and at his age could not resist what she did to him. This was therefore a wicked murder of a vulnerable old man done for financial gain. Anne was said to be visibly distressed during the trial and spent most of her time crying. I'll get out my world's smallest violin here. Upon hearing a sentence, Anne shouted to Judge Critchlow, May God forgive your soul. That's rich coming from her. Once the trial had concluded, Detective Inspector Juliet Parker made the following statement. Mr Williamson was a lonely man whose yearning for companionship sadly led him into the clutches of Anne Browning. She is a devious, calculating and callous individual whose greed led to this wicked crime. And that was the tragic story of Bill Williamson and British murderer Anne Browning. As with last week's episode, I was so surprised at the lack of coverage this case has in the podcast world. As with all my cases, I sincerely hope I've done it justice as Bill seemed like such a lovely man. Let me know what your thoughts are on this case. Drop me a comment below or contact me on social media. I'd love to hear from you as always. If you're interested in hearing more about this case, I highly recommend you watch Season 1, Episode 3 of A Town and Country Murder. It was a huge help with regards to my research and I would encourage you all to give it a watch. 
For more on British murders, please check out all my social media channels and YouTube. Merchandise is available to purchase at Teespring. You can support the show on Patreon and buy me a coffee. The biggest perk on the Patreon is ad-free episodes a day early and my scripts on there. All funds received go towards the show's production and research, so it does go back into the show. I don't just take all the money and buy myself a new pair of Nikes. You can email us some case suggestions at britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com. I recently received a case request from someone, and it was only the second ever request I've received via email. So I made a note of that, and I'm going to cover that in Season 4. And I will give the person a shout-out on that episode as well. If you want to get in touch, send me an email. Hit me up on social media. We'll talk. I'll more than likely cover your case, because if you give me a suggestion, it saves me having to think of one. If you want to review the show, it would be greatly appreciated. You can do that on iTunes and Podchaser. Increases the exposure, all that good stuff. But for now, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much again for listening or watching. Until next time, cheerio. Cheerio.